Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit JustSleepPodcast.com slash support for more information. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tonight, I will be reading two short stories by Catherine Mansfield. The Doll's House and psychology. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The Doll's House When dear old Mrs. Hay went back to town after staying with the Burnells, 
she sent the children a doll's house. It was so big that the carter and Pat carried it into the courtyard, and there it stayed, propped up on two wooden boxes beside the feed room door. No harm could come to it. It was summer. And perhaps the smell of paint would have gone off by the time it had to be taken in. For really, the smell of paint coming from that doll's house, sweet of old Mrs. Hay, of course, most sweet and generous, but the smell of paint was quite enough to make anyone seriously ill, in Aunt Beryl's opinion, even before the sacking was taken off. And when it was, there stood the doll's house, a dark, oily, spinach green, picked out with bright yellow. Its two solid little chimneys, glued onto the roof, were painted red and white, and the door, gleaming with yellow varnish, was like a little slab of toffee. Four windows, real windows, were divided into panes by a broad streak of green. There was actually a tiny porch, too, painted yellow, with big lumps of congealed paint hanging along the edge. But perfect, perfect little house. Who could possibly mind the smell? It was part of the joy, part of the newness. Open it quickly, someone. The hook at the side was stuck fast. Pat prized it open with his penknife, and the whole house front swung back. And there you were, gazing at one and at the same moment into the drawing room and dining room, the kitchen and two bedrooms. That is the way for a house to open. Why don't all houses open like that? How much more exciting than peering through the slit of a door into a mean little hall with a hat stand and two umbrellas? That is, isn't it? But you long to know about a house when you put your hand on the knocker? Perhaps it is the way God opens houses at the dead of night, when he is taking a quiet turn with an angel. Oh, the Brunel children sounded as though they were in despair. It was too marvellous. It was too much for them. They had never seen anything like it in their lives. All the rooms were papered. There were pictures on the wall, painted on the paper with gold frames complete. Red carpet covered all the floors except the kitchen. Red plush chairs in the drawing room, green in the dining room. Tables, beds with real bedclothes, a cradle, a stove, a dresser with tiny plates and one big jug. And what Kezia liked more than anything, what she frightfully liked, was the lamp. It stood in the middle of the dining room table, an exquisite little amber lamp with a white globe. It was even filled already for lighting, though, of course, you couldn't light it. But there was something inside that looked like oil and moved when you shook it. The father and mother dolls, who sprawled very stiff as though they had fainted in the drawing room, and their two little children asleep upstairs, were really too big for the doll's house. They didn't look as though they belonged. But the lamp was perfect. It seemed to smile at Kezia to say, I live here. The lamp was real. The Brunel children could hardly walk to school fast enough the next morning. 
they burned to tell everybody to describe to, well, boast about their doll's house before the school bell rang. I am to tell, said Isabel, because I'm the eldest, and you two can join in after, but I'm to tell first. There was nothing to answer. Isabel was bossy, but she was always right, and Lottie and Kezia knew too well the powers that went with being eldest. They brushed through the thick buttercups at the road edge and said nothing. And I'm to choose who's to come and see it first, Mother said I might. For it had been arranged that while the doll's house stood in the courtyard, they might ask the girls at school, two at a time, to come and look. Not to stay to tea, of course, or to come traipsing through the house, but just to stand quietly in the courtyard while Isabel pointed out the beauties and Lottie and Kezia looked pleased. But hurry as they might, by the time they'd reached the tarred palings of the boys' playground, the bell had begun to jangle. They only just had time to whip off their hats and fall into line before the roll was called. Never mind. Isabel tried to make up for it by looking very important and mysterious, and by whispering behind her hand to the girls near her. Got something to tell you at playtime. Playtime came, and Isabel was surrounded. The girls of her class nearly fought to put their arms around her, to walk away with her, to beam flatteringly, to be her special friend. She held quite a court under the huge pine trees at the side of the playground. Nudging, giggling together, the little girls pressed up close. And the only two who stayed outside the ring were the two who were always outside, the little Calvies. They knew better than to come anywhere near the Brunells. For the fact was, the school the Brunell children went to was not at all the kind of place their parents would have chosen if there had been any choice. But there was none. It was the only school for miles. And the consequence was that the children of the neighborhood, the judge's little girls, the doctor's daughters, the storekeeper's children, the milkman's, were forced to mix together not to speak of there being an equal number of rude, rough little boys as well. But the line had to be drawn somewhere. It was drawn at the Kelvies. Many of the children, including the Burnells, were not allowed even to speak to them. They walked past the Kelvies with their heads in the air, and as they set the fashion in all matters of behaviour, the Kelvies were shunned by everybody. Even the teacher had a special voice for them, and a special smile for the other children when Lil Kelvy came up to her desk with a bunch of dreadfully common-looking flowers. They were the daughters of a spry, hard-working little washerwoman who went about from house to house by the day. This was awful enough. But where was Mr. Kelvy? Nobody knew for certain, but everybody said he was in prison. So they were the daughters of a washerwoman and a jailbird. Very nice company for other people's children. And they looked it. Why Mrs. Kelvy made them so conspicuous was hard to understand. The truth was they were dressed in bits given to her by the people for whom she worked. Lil, for instance, who was a stout, plain child with big freckles, came to school in a dress made from a green tablecloth of the Burnells, with red plush sleeves from the Logan's curtains. Her hat, perched on top of her high forehead, 
was a grown-up woman's hat, once the property of Miss Alecki, the postmistress. It was turned up at the back and trimmed with a large scarlet quill. What a little guy she looked. It was impossible not to laugh. And her little sister, our Elsie, wore a long white dress, rather like a nightgown, and a pair of little boy's boots. But whatever our Elsie wore, she would have looked strange. She was a tiny wishbone of a child, with cropped hair and enormous solemn eyes, a little white owl. Nobody had ever seen her smile. She scarcely ever spoke. She went through life holding onto Lil with a piece of Lil's skirt screwed up in her hand. Where Lil went, or Elsie followed. In the playground, on the road going to and from school, there was Lil marching in front and our Elsie holding on behind. Only when she wanted anything, or when she was out of breath, our Elsie gave Lil a tug, a twitch, and Lil stopped and turned round. The Kelvies never failed to understand each other. Now they hovered at the edge. You couldn't stop them listening. When the little girls turned round and snared, Lil, as usual, gave her silly, shamed-faced smile, but our Elsie only looked. And Isabel's voice, so very proud, went on telling. The carpet made a great sensation, but so did the beds with real bedclothes and the stove with an oven door. When she finished, Kezia broke in. You've forgotten the lamp, Isabel. Oh yes, said Isabel. And there's a teeny little lamp, all made of yellow glass with a white globe that stands on the dining room table. You couldn't tell it from a real one. The lamp's best of all, cried Kezia. She thought Isabel wasn't making half enough of the little lamp. But nobody paid any attention. Isabel was choosing the two who were to come back with them that afternoon and see it. She chose Emmy Cole and Lena Logan. But when the others knew they were all to have a chance, they couldn't be nice enough to Isabel. One by one, they put their arms round Isabel's waist and walked her off. They had something to whisper to her, a secret. Isabel's my friend. Only the little Kelvies moved away forgotten. There was nothing more for them to hear. Days passed, and as more children saw the doll's house, the fame of it spread. It became the one subject, the rage. The one question was, have you been to the Burnell's doll's house? Oh, ain't it lovely? Haven't you seen it? Oh, I say. Even the dinner hour was taken up to talking about it. The little girls sat under the pines eating their thick mutton sandwiches and big slabs of Johnny cake spread with butter. While always, as near as they could get, sat the Kelvies, our Elsie holding on to Lil, listening too, while they chewed their jam sandwiches out of a newspaper soaked with large red blobs. Mother, said Kezia, can't I ask the Kelvies just once? Certainly not, Kezia. But why not? Run away, Kezia. You know quite well why not. At last, everybody had seen it except them. On that day, the subject rather flagged. It was the dinner hour. The children stood together under the pine trees, and suddenly, as they looked at the Kelvies eating out of their paper, always by themselves, always listening, they wanted to be horrid to them. Emmy Cole started the whisper. Lil Kelvy is going to be a servant when she grows up. 
Well, how awful, said Isabel Bernal, and she made eyes at Emmy. Emmy swallowed in a very meaning way and nodded to Isabel as she'd seen her mother do on those occasions. It's true, it's true, it's true, she said. Then Lady Logan's little eyes snapped. Shall I ask her? she whispered. Bet you don't, said Jessie May. I'm not frightened, said Lena. Suddenly she gave a little squeal and danced in front of the other girls. Watch, watch me, watch me now, said Lena. And sliding, gliding, dragging one foot, giggling behind her hand, Lena went over to the Kelvies. Lil looked up from her dinner. She wrapped the rest quickly away, or Elsie stopped chewing. What was coming now? Is it true you're going to be a servant when you grow up, Lil Kelvy? shrilled Lena. Dead silence. But instead of answering, Lil only gave her silly, shamefaced smile. She didn't seem to mind the question at all. What a sell for Lena. The girls began to titter. Lena couldn't stand that. She put her hands on her hips. She shot forward. Yeah, your father's in prison, she hissed spitefully. This was such a marvellous thing to have said that the little girls rushed away in a body deeply, deeply excited, wild with joy. Someone found a long rope and they began skipping. And never did they skip so high, run in and out so fast, or do such daring things as on that morning. In the afternoon, Pat called for the Burnell children with the buggy, and they drove home. There were visitors. Isabel and Lottie, who liked visitors, went upstairs to change their pinafores. But Kezia thieved out at the back. Nobody was about. She began to swing on the big white gates of the courtyard. Presently, looking along the road, she saw two little dots. They grew bigger. They were coming towards her. Now she could see that one was in front and one close behind. Now she could see that they were the Kelvies. Kezia stopped swinging. She slipped off the gate as if she was going to run away. Then she hesitated. The Kelvies came nearer and beside them walked their shadows, very long, stretching right across the road with their heads in the buttercups. Kezia clambered back on the gate. She had made up her mind. She swung out. Hello she said to the passing Kelvies. They were so astounded that they stopped. Lil gave her silly smile. Our Elsie stared. You can come and see our doll's house if you want to, said Kezia, and she dragged one toe on the ground. But at that, Lil turned red and shook her head quickly. Why not? asked Kezia. Lil gasped. Then she said, Your ma told our ma you wasn't to speak to us. Oh well, said Kezia. She didn't know what to reply. It doesn't matter. You can come and see our doll's house all the same. Come on. Nobody's looking. But Lil shook her head still harder. Don't you want to? asked Kezia. Suddenly there was a twitch, a tug at Lil's skirt. She turned round. Our Elsie was looking at her with big, imploring eyes. She was frowning. She wanted to go. For a moment, Lil looked at our Elsie very doubtfully, but then our Elsie twitched her skirt again. She started forward. Kezia led the way. Like two little stray cats, they followed across the courtyard to where the doll's house stood. There it is, said Kezia. There was a pause. 
Lil breathed loudly, almost snorted. Our Elsie was as still as stone. I'll open it for you, said Kezia kindly. She undid the hook, and they looked inside. There's the drawing room, and the dining room, and that's the... Kezia. Oh, what a start they gave. Kezia. It was Aunt Beryl's voice. They turned round. At the back door stood Aunt Beryl, staring as if she couldn't believe what she saw. How dare you ask the little Kelvies into the courtyard, said the cold, furious voice. You know as well as I do you're not allowed to talk to them. Run away, children. Run away at once. and Don't come back again, said Aunt Beryl. And she stepped into the yard and shooed them out as if they were chickens. Off you go, immediately, she called, cold and proud. They did not need telling twice. Burning with shame, shrinking together, Lil huddling along like her mother, or Elsie dazed. Somehow, they crossed the big courtyard and squeezed through the white gate. Wicked, disobedient little girl, said Aunt Beryl bitterly to Kezia, and she slammed the doll's house too. The afternoon had been awful. A letter had come from Willie Brent, a terrifying, threatening letter, saying if she did not meet him that evening in Pullman's bush, he'd come to the front door and ask the reason why. But now that she had frightened those little rats of Kelvies and given Kezia a good scolding, her heart felt lighter. That ghastly pressure was gone. She went back to the house, humming. When the Kelvies were out of sight of the Burnells, they sat down to rest on a big red drain pipe by the side of the road. Lil's cheeks were still burning. She took off the hat with a quill and held it on her knee. Dreamily, they looked over the hay paddocks, past the creek, to the group of wattles where Logan's cows stood waiting to be milked. What were their thoughts? Presently, our Elsie nudged up close to her sister. But now she had forgotten the cross lady. She put out a finger and stroked her sister's quill. She smiled her rare smile. I seen the little lamp, she said softly. Then both were silent once more. Psychology When she opened the door and saw him standing there, she was more pleased than ever before. And he too, as he followed her into the studio, seemed very happy to have come. Not busy? No, just going to have tea. And you're not expecting anybody? Nobody at all. Ah, that's good. He laid aside his coat and hat, gently, lingeringly, as though he had time and to spare for everything, and as though he were taking leave of them forever, and came nearer to the fire and held out his hands to the quick leaping flame. Just for a moment, both of them stood silent in that leaping light. Still, as it were, they tasted on their smiling lips the sweet shock of their greeting. Their secret selves whispered, Why should we speak? Isn't this enough? More than enough. I never realized until this moment. How good it is just to be with you, like this. It's more than enough. But suddenly he turned and looked at her, and she moved quickly away. Have a cigarette? I'll put the kettle on. Are you longing for tea? No, not longing. Well, I am. Oh, you. He thumped the Armenian cushion, 
and flung on to the sommier. She laughed. I long for tea as strong men long for wine. She lighted the lamp under its broad orange shade, pulled the curtains and drew up the tea table. Two birds sang in the kettle, the fire fluttered. He sat up, clasping his knees. It was delightful, this business of having tea, and she always had delicious things to eat, little sharp sandwiches, short sweet almond fingers, and a dark rich cake tasting of rum. But it was an interruption. He wanted it over, the table pushed away, the two chairs drawn up to the light, and the moment come when he took out his pipe, filled it and said, pressing the tobacco tight into the bowl, I've been thinking over what you said last time, and it seems to me. Yes, that was what he waited for, and so did she. Yes, while she shook the teapot hot and dry over the spirit flame, she saw those other two. Him, leaning back, taking his ease among the cushions, and her, curled up an escargot in the blue shell armchair. The picture was so clear and so minute. It might have been painted on the blue teapot lid. And yet, she couldn't hurry. She could almost have cried. Give me time. She must have time in which to grow calm. She wanted time in which to free herself from all these familiar things with which she lived so vividly. For all these things around her were part of her, her offspring. And they knew it, and made the largest, most vehement claims. But now they must go. They must be swept away shooed away like children, sent up the shadowy stairs, packed into bed, and commanded to go to sleep at once without a murmur. For the special, thrilling quality of their friendship was in their complete surrender. Like two open cities in the midst of some vast plain, their two minds lay open to each other. And it wasn't as if he rode into hers like a conqueror, armed to the eyebrows and seeing nothing but a silken flutter, nor did she enter his like a queen, walking soft on petals. No, they were eager, serious travellers, absorbed in understanding what was to be seen and discovering what was hidden, making the most of this extraordinary, absolute chance, which made it possible for him to be utterly truthful to her and for her to be utterly sincere with him. And the best of it was... They were both of them old enough to enjoy their adventure to the full without any stupid emotional complication. Passion would have ruined everything. They quite saw that. Besides, all that sort of thing was over and done with for both of them. He was 31, she was 30. They had had their experiences, and very rich and varied they had been. But now was the time for harvest. Harvest. Weren't his novels to be very big novels indeed? and her plays. Who else had her exquisite sense of real English comedy? Carefully, she cut the cake into thick little wads, and he reached across for a piece. Do realize how good it is, she implored. Eat it imaginatively. Roll your eyes if you can, and taste it on the breath. It's not a sandwich from the hatter's bag. It's the kind of cake that might have been mentioned in the book of Genesis. And God said, let there be cake, and there was cake and God saw that it was good. You needn't entreat me, said he. Really, you needn't. It's a strange thing, but I always do notice what I eat here, and never anywhere else. 
I suppose it comes of living alone so long and always reading while I feed. My habit of looking upon food as just food, something that's there at certain times, to be devoured, to be not there. He laughed. That shocks you, doesn't it? To the bone, she said. But look here. He pushed away his cup and began to speak very fast. I simply haven't got any external life at all. I don't know the names of things a bit, trees and so on. And I never notice places or furniture or what people look like. One room is just like another to me, a place to sit and read or talk in. Except, and here he paused, smiled in a strange, naive way and said, except this studio. He looked round him and then at her. He laughed in his astonishment and pleasure. He was like a man who wakes up in a train to find that he has arrived already at the journey's end. Here's another strange thing. If I shut my eyes, I can see this place down to every detail. Every detail. Now I come to think of it. I've never realized this consciously before. Often when I'm away from here, I revisit it in spirit, wander about among your red chairs, stare at the bowl of fruit on the black table, and just touch, very lightly, that marvel of a sleeping boy's head. He looked at it as he spoke. It stood on the corner of the mantelpiece, the head to one side, down drooping. The lips parted, as though in his sleep the little boy listened to some sweet sound. I love that little boy, he murmured. And then they were both silent. A new silence came between them. Nothing in the least like the satisfactory pause that had followed their greetings. The, well, here we are together again, and there's no reason why we shouldn't go on from just where we left off last time. That silence could be contained in the circle of warm, delightful fire and lamplight. How many times hadn't they flung something into it, just for the fun of watching the ripples break of the easy shores? But into this unfamiliar pool, the head of the little boy sleeping his timeless sleep dropped, and the ripples flowed away, boundlessly far, into deep, glittering darkness. And then both of them broke it. She said, I must make up the fire, and he said, I've been trying anew. Both of them escaped. She made up the fire and put the table back. The blue chair was wheeled forward. She curled up and he lay back among the cushions. Quickly, quickly, they must stop it from happening again. Well, I read the book you left last time. Oh, what do you think of it? They were off, and all was as usual. But was it? Weren't they just a little too quick, too prompt with their replies, too ready to take each other up? Was this really anything more than a wonderfully good imitation of other occasions? His heart beat, her cheek burned, and the stupid thing was she could not discover where exactly they were or what exactly was happening. She hadn't time to glance back. And just as she had got so far, it happened again. They faltered, wavered, broke down, were silent. Again they were conscious of the boundless questioning dark. Again there they were, two hunters bending over their fire, but hearing suddenly from the jungle beyond a shake of wind and a loud questioning cry. She lifted her head. It's raining, she murmured. 
and her voice was like his when he had said, I love that little boy. Well, why didn't they just give way to it, yield, and see what will happen? But no. Vague and troubled though they were, they knew enough to realize their precious friendship was in danger. She was the one who would be destroyed, not they, and they'd be no party to that. He got up, knocked out his pipe, ran his hand through his hair and said, I've been wondering very much lately whether the novel of the future will be a psychological novel or not. How sure are you that psychology qua psychology has got anything to do with literature at all? Do you mean you feel there's quite a chance that the mysterious, non-existent creatures, the young writers of today, are trying simply to jump the psychoanalyst's claim? Yes, I do. And I think it's because this generation is just wise enough to know that it is sick and to realize that its only chance of recovery is by going into its symptoms, making an exhaustive study of them, tracking them down, trying to get at the root of the trouble. But oh, she wailed, what a dreadfully dismal outlook. Not at all, said he. Look here. On the talk went. And now it seemed they really had succeeded. She turned in her chair to look at him, while she answered. Her smile said, we have won. And he smiled back, confident. Absolutely. But the smile undid them. It lasted too long. It became a grin. They saw themselves as two little grinning puppets jigging away in nothingness. What have we been talking about, thought he. He was so utterly bored he almost groaned. What a spectacle we've made of ourselves, thought she. And she saw him laboriously, oh laboriously, laying out the grounds, and herself running after, putting here a tree and there a flowery shrub, and here a handful of glittering fish in a pool. They were silent this time from sheer dismay. The clock struck six merry little pings, and the fire made a soft flutter. What fools they were, heavy, stodgy, elderly, with positively upholstered minds. And now the silence put a spell upon them like solemn music. It was anguish, anguish for her to bear it, and he would die. He'd die if it were broken. And yet he longed to break it, not by speech. At any rate, not by their ordinary maddening chatter. There was another way for them to speak to each other. And in a new way, he wanted to murmur, Do you feel this too? Do you understand it at all? Indeed, to his horror, he heard himself say, I must be off. I'm meeting Brand at six. What devil made him say that instead of the other? She jumped, simply jumped out of her chair, and he heard her crying, You must rush then. He's so punctual. Why didn't you say so before? You've hurt me. You've hurt me. We've failed, said her secret self, while she handed him his hat and stick, smiling. She wouldn't give him a moment for another word, but rang along the passage and opened the big outer door. Could they leave each other like this? How could they? He stood on the step, and she just inside holding the door. It was not raining now. You've hurt me, said her heart. Why don't you go? No, don't go. Stay. No, go. And she looked out upon the night. She saw the beautiful fall of the steps, the dark garden ringed with glittering ivy. On the other side of the road, the huge bare willows, and above them, 
the sky big and bright with stars. But of course, he would see nothing of all this. He was superior to it all. He with his wonderful spiritual vision. She was right. He did see nothing at all. Misery. He'd missed it. It was too late now to do anything. Was it too late? Yes, it was. A cold snatch of hateful wind blew into the garden. Curse life. He heard her cry au revoir, and the door slammed. Running back into the studio, she behaved so strangely. She ran up and down, lifting her arms and crying. Oh, how stupid. How imbecile. How stupid. And then she flung herself down on the sommelier, thinking of nothing, just lying there in her rage. All was over. What was over? Well, something was. And she'd never see him again. Never. After a long, long time, or perhaps ten minutes, had passed in that black gulf, her bell rang a sharp, quick jingle. It was he, of course, and equally, of course, she oughtn't to have paid the slightest attention to it, but just let it go on ringing and ringing. She flew to answer. On the doorstep there stood an elderly virgin, a pathetic creature who simply idolized her, heaven knows why, and had this habit of turning up and ringing the bell and then saying, when she opened the door, My dear, send me away. She never did. As a rule, she asked her in and let her admire everything and accepted the bunch of slightly soiled-looking flowers more than graciously. But today. Oh, I'm sorry, she cried, but I've got someone with me. We're working on some woodcuts. I'm hopelessly busy all evening. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all, darling, said the good friend. I was just passing and thought I'd leave you some violets. She fumbled down among the ribs of a large old umbrella. I put them down here. Such a good place to keep flowers out of the wind. Here they are, she said, shaking out a little dead bunch. For a moment she did not take the violets. But while she stood just inside holding the door, a strange thing happened. Again she saw the beautiful fall of the steps. The dark garden ringed with the glittering ivy, the willows, the big bright sky. Again she felt the silence that was like a question. But this time she did not hesitate. She moved forward, very softly and gently, as though fearful of making a ripple in that boundless pool of quiet. She put her arms round her friend. My dear, murmured her happy friend, quite overcome by this gratitude. They're really nothing, just the simplest little threepenny bunch. But as she spoke, she was enfolded, more tenderly, more beautifully embraced, held by such a sweet pressure, and for so long, that the poor dear's mind positively reeled, and she just had the strength to quaver. Then you really don't mind me too much? Good night, my friend, whispered the other. Come again soon. Oh, I will, I will. This time she walked back to the studio slowly, and standing in the middle of the room with half-shut eyes, she felt so light, so rested, as if she had woken up out of a childish sleep. Even the act of breathing was a joy. The sommelier was very untidy. All the cushions like furious mountains, as she said. She put them in order before going over to the writing table. I've been thinking over our talk about the psychological novel, she dashed off. It really is intensely interesting, and so on, and so on. 
At the end, she wrote, Good night, my friend. Come again soon. Good night. <laughs>